Welcome to Brands and Barbed Wire. I'm your host, Jim Johnson, and I'll take you behind the brands and we'll look through the barbed wire at some of the most iconic ranches in the world. So sit back, kick off your boots, and prepare to be entertained as I introduce you to those captivating stories from the legends of the brands and where there's no barbed wire that's going to hold us back. On today's episode of Brands and Barbed Wire, we get the honor to visit with a legend in the beef cattle industry. He's left a legacy in the cattle business and is truly one of the pioneers of the beef industry. I'm excited to learn the history and accomplishments of Dr. Paul Janot, and I'm sure you will be as well. Dr. Janot, welcome to Brands and Barbed Wire. Well, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Awesome. So for some of the folks that uh, might be a little younger generation and maybe haven't uh, haven't paid attention lately, what Tell us a little bit about uh, about Dr. Paul Janot and, and your family and just a little bit about where you live now and, and some of those things, Dr. Janot. Well, I've spent most of my life uh, running farms and ranches, first locally, small, and then the United States and then worldwide. So I've had a lifetime experience in global agriculture. When I graduated from college, a man put a trust in me to run a small ranch. I I was a manager of a one horse operation, you know, from where I was at, but I put in irrigation systems and one of the first semitall breeders in the nation and uh, started building that operation. Eventually they sold out. Uh, this guy got an opportunity to capture on land value and he sold it. And I was at that point down at Texas A&M working on PhD, started my PhD with Dr. Jim Wilbank and got involved with King Ranch while I was there. And uh, then later Desiree asked me to come and be advisory to him. And one thing led to another and I wound up managing Desert Ranches of Florida. Did that for 17 years. And then suddenly it was like, didn't matter, I went to work because everything that I had, uh, started was completed and I had all these young guys bright and eager and they were running the place and I'd go sit in my office so uh, King Ranch asked me to come and I went down was the first non-family manager at King Ranch and uh, spent seven years with them great years wonderful people good friends and then I was asked to come to Salt Lake City and uh, managed the LDS Church's International Investment worldwide and it was wonderful because I could do walnuts and walnuts and almonds and then move over and talk about marketing Wagyu in Japan from Australia and so when you got tired of one thing you could work on something else and did that for nine years and tell everyone I took early retirement at 71. <laughs> then I went back to the University of Florida was faculty a few years and did a little bit of research and uh, and now I'm back in Utah uh, at my home where I hybridize and create new daylilies. So that's sort of the loop. That's a that's a great summary. Well, let's let's go back and sort of unpack that a little bit. So how did you first get started in, in agriculture? And what was your really first interest growing up? And how did you know that's what you wanted to do? I, You know, my father was a commercial fisherman. So I grew up in the food industry. But I was always fascinated from my, the time I could remember, first remember with growing things. Uh, it was just uh, something I have to do is plant a seed and grow something. 
create some new cattle or, you know, I've got to be doing that. It's just intuitive in me. And uh, so I had intended to major in agronomy because I had not had cattle experience. Turned out that was a blessing because there was so much convention at the time that needed to be ignored. And I had no problem ignoring it because it wasn't historic with me. So I started off in agronomy and and uh, one of my faculty members of first semester at BYU, Dr. Max Wallentown, said, that's wonderful. You could be a great agronomy major. Would you mind taking these two animal science courses? One was nutrition, feeds and feeding. Another was a survey course. And I never looked back. I never took an agronomy course. Uh, that's all self-learned. And then I dug into that, wound up you know, getting a PhD in reproductive physiology. And, uh, but I always had a passion for genetics. So even though I had a repro degree, I, I probably done more genetics work in my life than I did repro stuff, including my research. And uh, that's sort of how I got into it. So where, where did you grow up at? Jacksonville, Florida. Jacksonville, Florida. Okay. So you grew up in Jacksonville. You were mentioning earlier about uh, getting interested in a garden and stuff like that. I mean, tell me a little bit more about that. I think I told you a little earlier that when I was about seven or eight years old, my mother came home. I had a shovel and I was digging up the backyard. She said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to plant a garden. So she took me around behind the garage and gave me a six by eight area and said, you can plant anything you want here. And uh, so I did. I mean, I rooted mulberry trees and grew garden plants and and I even started hybridizing uh, that early uh, plants cross breeding of the plants lady across the street brought me over gardening magazines early 50 50 something to read was that didn't come easy I read all the old yearbooks of agriculture I don't know if you remember those but the one on soils was fascinating you know and you couldn't go online and find that stuff, you know, you, you had a thirst for knowledge, you had to, it was hard to find sometimes. So one of those magazines was old magazines, they were glossy paper and you rubbed your finger on the came off on your finger. <laughs> and uh, the one that one of them was a Florida gardener. And so I went in, there was an article about a woman that was hybridizing daylilies. And I jumped on my bicycle and rode over to her house, knocked on her door, five or six mile ride, and asked her if she'd teach me how to hybridize. And so then I started crossing plants and and that and the. And how old? Just out of curiosity, how old would you have been when you jumped on your bike and started riding and and hybridizing uh, uh, lilies? Probably thirteen. Yeah, and so then you. You ended up going to school at BYU, is that right? I got a two-year degree at a junior college in Florida. Okay. Uh, I, went on, I went on mission for the LDS Church. When I came home, I needed a job, and I went to work for some ranching friends that lived 40 or 50 miles away down Placa, Florida, the Tilden family, and I kept books for them. You know, accounting is important in agriculture, and I learned so much on that job record keeping and that it was like my whole life it's like knowledge and information and training was layering for the mar and i didn't know it so when i start running large international agriculture operations 
having a background in accounting didn't hurt. That's right. It sure helped out. So you left Florida and went to BYU and, and completed your, your BS there. Got a two-year degree at a, a junior college in Florida, then went to BYU, got a bachelor's, wound up in student government. I didn't want to, but some friends put me out and I wound up in student government. And, and so I stayed and worked on my master's there, finished my master's in, and I worked in the micro area, uh, worked on animal diseases. Uh, swine dysentery. I was researching that. What was the cause of aging in swine dysentery? And uh, when I got through that, a friend approached me about running a, a ranch. He knew that's what I wanted to do, an, elder, an older friend. And he bought a ranch on the deserts of Utah. And I then went out there and made all the mistakes young guys made. You know, installed irrigation systems. This was bare ground, drilled wells. And Travis Smith had just bought the Simitals into Canada, and I was fascinated. So I went up to Canada and saw those and uh, registered myself. As, I think I was an American Simitol Association member number 18. Oh, wow. And, and uh, so did a little AI and read, trying to upgrade the Simitol and uh, you know, stayed there a few years. And then it was obvious that that place wasn't big enough for me and in life. And uh, so I went down and started a PhD with Jim Wiltbank, A&M. And then that led to me having a relationship with King Ranch because a lot of the work I did there was on King Ranch. And then uh, Jim left A&M and came up to BYU and then my major professor was gone. So I put my PhD on a shelf for a year or two. That's when Desiree asked me to come to Florida, 81. And uh, so I went down 81 to be the cattle manager. It was the most wonderful job in the world. Their, their pregnancy rates were in the low 70s and their weaning weights were 370. And uh, anything I did made it better. And, uh, and I, I designed genetic programs I worked on mineral programs. I worked on forage programs. And I took all the knowledge I'd accumulated and was still accumulating and figured out how to apply it. And I really tell people that my career has been being an integrator. Find knowledge, figure out how to integrate it into the cattle industry in a viable, useful way, practical way. So whether it's DNA work, which you know I were early on, or a mineral program, I would accumulate that knowledge, work with the best people, then say, how can I use that in the industry? So um, so at that time, Desert Ranches in Florida would have you been, you would have had uh, how many cattle managing how many 30, cattle? 30,000. Yep. And you couldn't say you didn't like them. Because there was one, there was one of every kind in the pasture. You'd have 200 cows and there were 200 different breeds combinations or some or other. There was no systematic reading there was nothing and and uh, the cattle were not a high reputation cattle and, uh, and they were considered junk cattle and people would buy them and so I launched the uh, uh, you know genetic programs and it, it was just a great time of my life I'd wake up with more to do than I could get done running all day long and trying to get it done come home exhausted and uh, my wife and kids and, try to be a good father and 
it, it was a great time in my life. Uh, I loved every minute of it. And so, so how many years had you been married at this time, and, and how many kids did you have? We got married in 1970. I went down in 81, so we'd been married 11. We had nine kids. The last two were born at Times of Ranch and Florida. The rest were born in Utah, or one was born in A&M when I was there. But my wife's father was uh, an engineer at Los Alamos and was on the first explosions of no one knows exactly what his job was and never will. And so she grew up in, uh, you know, scientific family, uh, very supportive, wonderful gal. Uh, I always tell people she wasn't perfect, but she was perfect for me. And we had a wonderful relationship. Marisa was nine kids. And most of my kids are involved in agriculture today, you know, so one way or another. Yeah, you bet. And so... um we're just out of curiosity, not to go down a different track, but where, where did you and your wife meet? So we were at Brigham Young together. Okay. Uh, BYU. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I hadn't heard that you, before. <laughs> so there's 30,000 students and 12,000 single boys and 18,000 single girls. And so it was happy hunting ground, you know, and, <laughs> You got, pick, you got the pick of the litter. <laughs> there was a smorgasbord of beautiful girls there. So, you know, uh, good. and I, my wife was, uh, you know, when I was a student body officer, I had to show up to certain functions. And there were girls that wanted to go to those. And I would take a girl to that function, drop her off, go get my wife, and she and I go rabbit on down the desert. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So, um so you're back, you're, you're managing Deseret and, and you brought in and did they have a seed stock herd or, or did you develop that? So I developed that. So the first five years I was the cattle manager at Deseret and there was a general manager, Bob Lammer, a great friend. He was a banker and he brought uh, accounting discipline and integrity to a place that had been kind of loosely run for a while. And I got the cattle and the pastures and then later the citrus. When he left in 81, I became, I mean, in 86, I became the general manager. I would just take one thing at a time and work on it. The cattle were the year-round breeding season. And so first thing I did is said, we're going to, uh, this is an interesting story, dear friend, long gone, but uh, the, all my foremen are there and I've told them we're going to cut the breeding season to five months the first year, and then four months and three months, and we're gonna get down to a 90-day breeding season on that, those cattle. So one of the old guys had been there a long time and who became a dear friend said, uh, when you were in Utah, how many cattle did you run? I said, a couple of hundred. He said, do you think you can come down here and tell us who've been running 30,000 cows how to run them? I said, Morris, you know you're probably right. But I can tell you this. I've seen the books on both places. And I made more money on those 200 cattle than you guys made on your 30,000. So I think we'll do it my way. <laughs> <laughs> so I told him we're going to get all these bulls out. Now, their bulls have never been gathered. Big, you know, 17, 1800-pound bulls on those thickets and swamps and, you know, South Florida's not swingers, they call them. 
and they, you know, you you weren't going to get them out there. And uh, I bought a tranquilizer gun. Helped that helped a little bit, but <laughs> but uh, we got them out. I here's the deal: they had 13 foremen. Each of them had about 3,000 cows. You know, most of them more or less. And I said, uh, the first guy that gets all of the cattle out, I'm gonna buy Stetson for. And the last guy that gets them out, I'm gonna take the money out this side. <laughs> so it's the first guy you're gonna buy the hat and the last guy you're gonna he was actually the one that was gonna buy the hat right <laughs> yeah. that's pretty good so we got them all out and you know you got a few and i had to shoot one or two finally just couldn't get close enough to tranquilize them we got them out and and, and immediately things improved uh, that next year after all fun we were averaging um about uh seven million pounds of calf a year within five years i was 12 million pounds of calf a year oh wow almost doubled it and and with no more expenditures no more men no more horses no more feed it was just applying good animal science principles that we learned in genetics 101 and you know animal breeding and animal nutrition here's an example you bring a bunch of cattle to the corral, you know, 300 head, you break one to two legs going down the chute. And I said, this is crazy. That shouldn't happen. Uh, they weren't manhandling them. They just pop a leg. And I concluded it was a mental problem. The guy said, it always happens. I went and did a lot of work with Jack Loosely, a famous animal nutritionist, and a few other guys. And developed a mineral for Deseret, they still use it, up the phosphorus, you know, and got the cattle, worked on palatability. And immediately I went to, we wouldn't break three legs a year out of the 30,000. One exciting thing after another to work on. So when did you start the um, the sort of the seed stock herd and, and the three breed sort of rotation that you- First thing I said, we need a systematic crossbreeding system. Well, a three B rotation system is obviously uh, one of the best systems you're going to have. When you have large number of cattle and you're going to have a lot of different herds, you can work that. Smaller operation, you have to go to a composite, you know. But so I initiated that in '81. Started sorting cattle, and uh, <clears throat> I remember we took everything that was excessively humpy, wound up with three thousand of those, and put that on one unit. Bought Fleckley Scimitar Bulls, you know, smaller frame Scimitar Bulls, and put that on that and started the Simber program. I was looking for a third breed. At the time, you know, I concluded to do a three breed rotation system using American breeds. A lot of the boys in Florida were doing English, Brahma, English, Brahma rotation, two breed rotation. Well, then your heifers either had half your heifers had too much uh, English in them to keep and half your steers had too much Brahma in them to get the top market. I decided that we get about a quarter to three inch Brahma the cattle analyze, and I would just cross the American breed. No one had really ever thought of that and so I started doing that in a systematic way and it worked wonderfully and they still follow that program. Uh, so then you start looking for the breeds to put in there and uh, Brangus were an obvious, and we did a lot of red Brangus work early and then some black, but they were an obvious. But red cattle do better in Florida than the black. 
because of heat. A guy named Genoa researched that on a couple of thousand head of cattle, some like 20,000, and looked at pregnancy rate in red cattle versus black cattle, and there was about 3% difference. You know, then this December was obvious. We had a bunch of breaker cattle from, you know, uh, the McMahon, you know, Bob McCann's family. They were all right. They weren't the greatest at the time, but they were adapted. So we tried the Brayfords. Over the years, we gave up on the Brayfords. And one last thing we did was work on a new composite we got in that thing. I regarded as uh, our red ass cattle, we call them. But, uh, yeah, I was down there. Um, I think Mike Meek was was managing it then. And, and um you guys were were working on that red composite, uh, and that was that was fascinating just to see those cattle and learn as you guys worked on that as well. Yeah, so that system's now been operating since uh, <clears throat> eighty four, eighty three. So that's almost what almost forty years. That three bead rotation is gone, and you know what I really, really, really appreciate is. I'm, you know, weaning weights went up. They're over 500 pounds now, mean weaning weight. Uh, for that little Florida cattle, that's over half their body weight, you know. But the reputation of those cattle, whereas I had trouble selling it first, we had reputation buyers who come back. Yeah, they decided they worked after you uh, put some heterosis in them and cleaned them up and put some more quality in them, huh? Yeah, yeah. The marbling, uh, was what shocked people. They were Florida cattle weren't supposed to marble. Those cattle are 70%, 80% choice cattle. Wow. Wow. Even with the three problem animals. So what made you decide to want to leave that and then go to King Ranch? Well, I was there 17 years, like I said, and I had a bunch of bright guys that I was training and developing. I found out about halfway through that. Well, first, let me just tell you, in 86, Bob Lammer went to Salt Lake and and suddenly they needed a new general manager and I was cattle manager. Came down and said, we want you to be general manager. I said, why would I want to do that? <laughs> I got the best job in the world. I got 30,000 cows to fool with. And I get to go out and tend my cattle. And when I want to try something new or different, I have orange groves and I get bored. Why would I want to go send that office? And they said, well, here's the deal. Nobody else could be general manager over you. Everybody looked to you other than him. So if you got to take it or we got to fire you. Oh, so, wow. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have much choice at that point, did you? <laughs> so I became a general manager. General manager, And, and uh, then, you know, I wound up working in Oklahoma and, and uh, Texas ranches that we got. And, it was interesting because about that time, uh, NCBA started looking for me to come help do things. I had no interest. And uh, the president of the company, John Crears, uh, said, you need to go do that. I said, John, I'm not interested in that. I'm not going to get anything out of that. He said, Paul, I'm not interested in what you give. You get. I'm interested in what you give. We're part of the industry. You go help. So that's when I started my John into the leadership at uh, NCBA. I always declined to ever become president. I didn't need that, but I probably chaired more committees than anybody. So I got into research and led us into the uh, 
a lot of the genomic stuff and uh, and the carcass EPDs and you know working with O'Regan and a bunch of those guys. We we had a group. then I got into the marketing, spent a lot of time on animal health, the brucellosis eradication, you know, a lot of things that so that led me into the cat the National Academy of the so then I was at Dead Red and I was general manager there for almost 12 years and uh, 17 years total. But it was like, I didn't, I, I, I told him in Salt Lake, I've looked in my bag of tricks and I played them all. I don't know what else to do now. And I don't just want to come to work every day. So King Ranch came and asked me and I accepted. I uh, went to King Ranch and spent seven years there. How many cows would King Ranch uh, have run then? And oh, about twenty three thousand. But we had a feed yard, and we ran seventy thousand stockers. So it put me in to turn the feed yard profitable. Uh, breeding, you know, I fed cattle, but I used to say there was only two sure things in agriculture: uh, potatoes and feedlot. You're sure you're going to lose money when you get in them. And I didn't want anything to do with them. But suddenly I had one and I became fascinated with that. And that led to a whole carcass merit studies and all the, you know, interest in the, the product. Uh, so, and then the hunting, I got much more involved in the hunting. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. That's curious. Um, so King Ranch, I mean, for the, for most people have heard the, obviously the name of King Ranch and Deseret Ranch, but it was a, a huge ranch um, and, and lots of cows and lots of enterprises. But the hunting thing has sort of grown to be pretty popular there too. So tell, tell us a little bit about how, how you got that started. So at Deseret, I, one of my failures was I never got around to get involved in the hunting and the wildlife management. We had programs, but it was, you know, drag a trailer in and drop in the woods and go shoot a deer and there was no management. So when it came ranch, uh, it was obvious that it was much more important. Now, Keo Clayburn, who was my predecessor, started that program and much of the credit for a lot of things that went on at King Ranch is Teo's. Uh, Santa Cruz, he and his brother developed them. So I don't claim to start uh, that program at King Ranch. What I did do was recognize the value of it more and uh, had a few more people that were maybe scientifically oriented to, to look at that, you know, scientifically and where we needed to go with it. Some of the issues, you know, issues. So I refined a bit what Teo started. But, you know, Deseret, about 17% of our income came from hunting. At King Ranch, about 40% of the income came from hunting. Wow. So... That meant that I needed to spend 40% of my time on it. So that led me to get involved more. Uh, how do you price a hunting lease? Well, at King Deseret, we just uh, had that we wanted to pay, cover property taxes, which is time about $3 an acre. We covered that. We thought we did a home run. Towards the end of my tenure in Florida, I decided to put some up for bid. And suddenly I found out the value you know, the auction is a good way to determine value. It's price discovery mechanism. So suddenly I found out that the value was three times what we were asking. That's what people would pay. And so when I got to King Ranch, they had a list of uh, 
people that they considered acceptable to have a lease on that property. And they called them up and offered it to them. And I said, let's take four or five people off that list, find them the bid. Well, again, we found out it was three times higher than we were asking. And so the price discovery mechanism for the value of a hunting lease became one of the things I introduced at King Ranch. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. So what, and and hunting would have been largely what, white-tailed deer, mule deer? What, what would? I said this many times. At King Ranch, this is the order of things. Quail, <laughs> cattle, deer. <laughs> quail, cattle, deer. We break for quail. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Uh, gentlemen, you know, rednecks aren't deer. Gentlemen hunt quail. Uh, and the uh, it was a premier quail place. And so learning to manage for cover and sendero and they, you know, keep the cattle, keep those little birdie, baby birds hatched. They've got to have protein. They have to have bugging areas. So you've got everything in tall grass. There's no bugging areas for those baby birds. So you disc a, a, a line a fire trail, if you will, and every year in the fall, in the spring, that's your bugging area for baby birds. So you learn to manage the birds and you learn to burn for the birds. And uh, so the, so that was our big emphasis was quail. Uh, and they're deer and that was important, but, and I'm probably exaggerating on that, quail! <laughs> but I said that over and over and then I tell people this, Horses. But, <laughs> Horses at the bottom. Uh, that's great. Well, some would argue with me, but, uh, <laughs> but that was where our money came from. You know, uh, people would come there for quail leases. And if you had good quail, they pay a whole lot more than if you had good deer. So what were some, some maybe some innovative uh, things you started there at King Ranch uh, while you were there? Again, I took the principles that we had done at Deseret and, and like accounting principles that I put in and uh, cost-based accounting. And uh, I mean, uh, you know, instead of cost basis, I do, you know, cruel value counting. So you could evaluate an operation. If they had to take it out of the end of the year, take it out of the end of the year. But I wanted to transfer those cattle into a feed yard at market value. Well, Counting principle, you tra you transfer them in at what you got invested in them. Well, then the feed yard always looks successful. So I wouldn't do that. I'd transfer them in at market value, and if the feedlot made a profit on that's the profit shared against the feedlot. And uh, then the accountants got the joy of eliminating it in the year. But I did a lot of things like that. But one of the things I'm absolutely the most proud of was it was approaching the uh, 150-year anniversary at King Ranch. Obviously, I'd worked on the seed stock herd, and I produced the first genomically tested bull in North America, and, uh, you know, sold him at our 150th celebration. I'm very proud of all that, my DNA work, genomic work, but uh, the university there, Texas A&M and the Kingsville, had come to me and asked me if I would fund few assistantships. I said, no, I won't because you don't have the base to support a good uh, graduate program. You can fund a kid in a 
and animal nutrition, but you don't have the biochemistry program that's supporting, you know. But I'll tell you this, I get people everywhere looking for managers, and there's no good ag management program anywhere in North America. And I would fund, if you put together an ag management program, I will fund that, I'll, you know, I'll get you some money for some students and that. The next day I was in a meeting with Jamie Clements, chairman of the Board of King Ranch, and Tio and some of the other family members, Shaq on who's the president of King Ranch. And they were talking about planting the 150th centennial. And Helen Playberg said, if this is just going to be a party, let's don't do it. I don't need an excuse to have a party. I can have that anytime. We're going to do something good in this celebration, then let's do it. And so they started talking about what kind of programs they would fund or help generate literacy and so on and so forth programs that would bless the world. And uh, they turned to me and said, what do you think? And I told them that I'd had the discussion the day before and told them that I get requests for ranch managers and there's nobody really turning them out because you go get a degree at a and you become a scientist. You don't become a manager, you know? And, uh, and they liked the idea. And so I was charged with leading that, Jamie Clements, chairman of the board, and uh, I worked together on that. And I went over and worked with the university to start the King Ranch Institute of Ranch Management. I put a lot of effort into that. And Jamie and I flew around and we raised $10 million to endow it. And so it was a, we said it's the only institute in America where the ranchers form the council and they give direction to the program. They're not just advisors. They're essentially a board of directors. And they have some control over the funding and the faculty. So, so starting that program was, uh, in my mind, one of the most innovative things I've done my whole career and the greatest contribution. Today, there are many of those graduates out in the animal industry making great contributions. They learned some things. Yep, you bet. I, I, I run into them. Uh, frequently in the, in the industry and it is the premier ranch um, management program in the country. One of the great honors of my life, I retired and got a call and said, can we use your name on the program? I said, sure. I showed up in the Quinlan Dow Chair, the Paul Juno and Dow Chair of Ranch Management. That's one of the most flattering things that ever happened to me. But, but I love that institute and I'm glad it's there. Doing what it's doing. I go down every now and then and interact with the students or speak, but I'm sort of yesterday now. There's the kids that graduated 15 years ago and go down ranching more current, and they're the ones that go down and interact more with the students now. But that program's that program's a great program. So you you started that and then um you got the opportunity to come back to Deseret. So when Jack Hunt asked me to go to King Ranch, I said I'll come for three to five years. When I told the Deseret group I was leaving, they said they, the church leadership came and said, uh, you can go with our blessing. We're glad you're doing that. But if we ever want you, we're going to come back and get you. So uh, I got a call from and asked me if I would come back. And it would just happen 
that I was I began to have asthma problems in South Texas. It was difficult for me to function there, and uh, I knew I was going to have to move from there. So I went to Salt Lake, and uh, uh, again, my predecessor had been a dear friend, but he had built this um, con conglomerate of operations all over the world, but he never put together a corporate structure to manage it. So I began, that's where I began. How do you manage a worldwide operation? You know, I don't know how it happened. I was moving irrigation pipes, hand pipes, when I was 27. And then when I was 70, I was a strategist. I don't know what happened. <laughs> you know how that change happened in, in I don't know what years. it was. <laughs> but suddenly I was, what's our strategy? You know, everywhere I went, what are we... What's the question? What are we trying to do? I want to know how we get it done. I wouldn't ask their little questions anymore. I would say, we got to have a strategy. And so I created a strategic vision document for the operation. What would the scope of, of that been? I mean, just for our listeners to get an idea of, of the, to get your hands around that, how, you know, what would the scope of that operation been at the time? You know, some of that's confidential information. Sure. And I want to be cautious about not saying too much. But we had properties in Brazil, Argentina, Mexico, New Zealand, uh, Australia, and 38 U.S. states, Canada. So it was a pretty big operation. Uh, and, and and very diversified as far as food and, and yeah, those type yeah, of things, yeah. all, all agricultural-based. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah, all agriculture. It was so much fun because I could go out and get involved in the almond industry and just go through where we were at and what we were trying to accomplish in, in that. And some of my predecessors were great farmers and they established wonderful almond groves. But it's something I can work with. How do you really market when you're the largest, uh, one of the largest almond producers in the world? How do you market that? Uh, just an example, we, there were some guys insisted I go look at rice field in California, and I had no interest about rice field in California. I kept saying, why don't we just go to lunch? No, we want you to see this. And on the way, someone said, they're planting olives up there. I said, change your course, take me up there. And uh, I happened to know that the olive oil industry at the time was the only industry where it was double-digit increases in demand annual. And so why aren't we in olives? Which led to trips to explore olives in Spain and Portugal, Greece. And then I came up with the idea that we ought to be counter-cyclical. The Mediterranean's producing olive oil and in the fall, what if we go up below the equator and had high quality olive oil in the spring? which led us to South America, which led us to Chile. And we now had a beautiful olive plantation we put in in Chile, you know? And so I got to learn all about olives and, uh, and that was just fun, exciting. Now, by then I had great managers, vice presidents, officers running the cattle operation. And I go once a year and do a punctorial tour, you know, show interest. But there wasn't much I was going to contribute there, so I got to go elsewhere. And people were my most important product then. But you learn in management, 
at that at some point, the most important thing you do is develop people. That's more important than a new breed of cattle or a new, because if you don't have people that can manage it and manage it into the future so the perpetuity, it'll collapse. And uh, I don't care how good you are in breed of cattle or whatever. So, so the last part of my career, my crop was mostly people. Every time I would go to Chile, I'd say, but how am I going to manage this? I can't send an expat down here. He wants to come home in three years. How did I train a South American kid to run a large operation the way we want it run? I think that's interesting. I mean, um, you go to school to learn to to manage cattle or, or crops or whatever, and you end your career managing people and, and growing and developing them. And, and I think that's a, I think that's a great story. I think that's a great, you know, testament to what you've done and, you know, really being able to pass that on. And, and you not only have done it, I think with other people in agriculture, obviously, but, but that, you know, the other areas are your kids. I mean, they're all, like you said, involved in agriculture and, and they're going to continue on that Geno legacy um, in, in various other parts of agriculture too. So my wife, uh, one of the large family and she was in charge of how big the family would be. She, she got to make that call, right? Every time I'd say, I remember when we had five, I said, don't you think we ought to slow down? She said, we're supposed to have more. I've seen them. I said, okay, Meredith. But, uh, when the Lord said multiply and replenish the earth, he didn't intend for me and you to do it alone. <laughs> 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 working on this but uh, today i'm so grateful for those kids my 42 grandkids and uh, and what they are becoming they're just fine young men and uh, some of them aren't going to be in agriculture but i just look with tremendous joy and pride on what's on my posterity so tell us what uh so after after deseret what's paul Janot doing now and uh and what are what are you doing and what are you enjoying and how are you, how are you uh enjoying retirement? Well, like I said, I retired at seventy one. I've been I was one month away from seventy two. You know, it was time to move on and uh, so when I retired, uh set up a little consulting business and visit some people and see if I could help them. I did a little bit of that. Yeah, but then the University of Florida approached me and asked me if I'd go on their faculty. And I did. I'm still technically on the faculty, but I spent two years down there, mostly working with the forage researchers and with international students, helping them, counseling with them, you know. And uh, uh, But I also decided I just have to grow something. I've got 12 acres of irrigated acres. I could get 20 or 30 cows and but I, much as I love cattle, I didn't want 20 cows to determine my travel plans. I can't leave because it'll take care of the cattle. And so I went back to my childhood. What got me into agriculture was that neighbor bringing those magazines over on hybridizing. And I got to look around and no one had ever developed daylilies for the Mountain West. So I started hybridizing daylilies. And turn, I'm now, you know, got a little reputation in that world. And they don't know who I am, who I did in agriculture. They think I'm a flower child, you know. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> But I create new daylilies adapted to the Mountain West. 
Last year, I shipped them to 38 states. People won them, you know, and uh, that's what that's what I'm doing now. I'm trying to be a good grandfather and uh, still help people uh, when I can, my neighbors and, uh, you know, and other people. And occasionally, uh, someone was, I did some work with Neogen for a while, consulting. Basically, I was trying to help the food safety people make entree into some of the industries where they didn't, you know, like the nut industry. And and so I did some of that with Neogen. But, uh, I've stayed busy. I don't have any spare time. I swore that I'm going to write. I want to write a book of stories to teach what's... Uh, I don't want to write a textbook, and I don't want to write a funny book. I want to write a, a group of stories uh, by, that teach a principle on... Uh, because a lot of times that's what you learn. If you catch that story, you gather that principle and stick with you. But I haven't got to that yet. Just that um, I want to do maybe one day. That's interesting. So if people wanted to to learn more about your um, daylily business, is is there a way that, that they could do that? Or or do you have like a, a, a web page or anything? I have, I keep saying I got to build a web page. Got to build a web page. And then I say, but that bed needs weeding. <laughs> <laughs> and but, I, hadn't learned to, I hadn't learned to manage myself to do that web page yet. But I have a Facebook page. My uh, garden is Monte Vista Gardens. And uh, my first ranch was Monte Vista. The little ranch I ran out in Cedar Valley, Utah, was my, I named it Monte Vista, Mountain View. So I kept that name. And so my gardens are Monte Vista Gardens. And I'm nestled in the, the end of the Utah Valley, surrounded by the Wasatch Front of the Rocky Mountains. And then I go to Florida in the winter, and I'm on the Space Coast. Uh, you know, in that area. Uh, and I do daylilies there and daylilies here and all of them back and forth. But anyway. Oh, that's interesting. So Monta Vista Gardens on Facebook is a is where they can find your daylilies. If you put Monta Vista Gardens space in Utah, that'll get rid of everybody else or even the Monta Vista Garden, Utah. And, and you'll see some pictures. I don't post every day, but there's something in there you might can see. And if anybody's interested, I'd love to chat with them about it and they give me a call anytime yeah i can't wait i'm gonna i'm gonna look it up right after the podcast so uh well that's good and 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 if you're on facebook um paul you can you can look for brands and barbed wire and listen to the the other episodes that we have on there as well so you can listen okay. to them right off of right off of facebook well great it was great having you we we want to also give a, a plug for you know the king ranch uh, institute for ranch management again and and if they wanted, if people wanted to find out more about that, and you know, we get a lot of younger ranch listeners. Uh, if they want to find out more about that, they can just go to the to the King Ranch Institute uh, webpage. K R I R M King Ranch Institute of Ranch Management. K R I R M, and it'll take you there. All right, perfect, great. Well, Paul, it's really been a pleasure hearing your story and and getting to catch up with you again and. Really appreciate you taking your time to to tell us about yourself and your career and and uh, and everything on Brands and Barbara. Really appreciate it, Paul. Thank you. For our producer Carlos Cheriboga, I'm your host Jim Johnson. God bless and thank you for listening to Brands and Barbwire. The Brands and Barbwire podcast can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share. 
You can also find additional content at our Brands and Barbed Wire Facebook page and at brandsandbarbedwire.com. We hope you enjoyed Brands and Barbed Wire. The Brands and Barbed Wire podcast is sponsored by Jamar Genetics. For semen on our newest herd sires, Jamar Jehovah 8M11 and Jamar Jubal 5P01, please contact Jim Johnson at 434-546-2341 or visit jamargenetics.com.